We have recently finished up a study several months long of the book of Judges. And Lord willing, sometime in the early fall, we're going to begin to study through the book of Ephesians. But in the intervening weeks, we've looked recently at Jesus' encounters, and we're going to do that more this morning out of Matthew 19. In recent weeks, we've seen Jesus and his encounter with Zacchaeus. Last week, we saw how the Roman centurion and indeed the crowd that was gathered beneath the cross of Christ, how they reacted and responded to the strange happenings of Calvary. This morning, another familiar account out of Matthew 19, and that is Jesus and the rich young man, or the rich young ruler. How privileged we are not to just have the gospel message unfolded and relayed to us in Scripture, but we also have Jesus' conversations with men like this rich young man, the great evangelist, Jesus Christ, encountering this one that comes inquiring how his soul could be made right. So if you found your place in Matthew 19, I'm actually going to read Matthew 19, and then we're going to turn over to Mark chapter 10 and read the same account. Mark gives us more detail. We're going to combine those two together. And then we could also go over to the Gospel of Luke and read from there, but we're not going to do that. The only Details that Luke gives us that are not contained in Matthew and Mark basically are the fact that this young man was also considered to be a ruler, most likely of the synagogue. So if you'll follow along with me, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father. And your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, if you'll turn over to Mark chapter 10, we're going to read the same account beginning in verse 17 down through verse 22. Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we've come to your word this morning and we're seeking to understand it rightly. Help me to divide it accurately. Give us ears to hear it and eyes to see the spiritual truth here. Father, help us like this rich young man to be concerned about the state of our soul. Oh God, but give grace that we would not be like him in turning away from you. Lord, I pray for the conversion of any lost who are here, those who are outside of Christ. I pray that you would build up those who are your sheep, that you would speak to our hearts, encourage and edify us, admonish us, help us to live in ways that reflect your glory. We ask in these things that you would add your blessing to your word as we've read it and attempt to preach it. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's helpful to see the context into which this account is sandwiched. On the front side, we have Jesus teaching his disciples about entering the kingdom as little children. After his disciples rebuked those who brought children to him, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And we're taught there many things, but at least and perhaps primarily that if we are to receive the kingdom, we will do so in great humility and in great trust. On the other side of Jesus' discussion or conversation with the rich young ruler, and based upon his discussion, we have him teaching his disciples the difficulty of rich men entering the kingdom. And right in the middle, we have this young man coming to Christ with concern for his soul. So let's get this young man in as clear focus as we can. What we learn about him from the scriptures, Jesus already knew. But it's helpful for us to see him as he is with all of the biblical detail so that we can make better sense of the way Jesus deals with him. Jesus Christ is indeed the great evangelist, isn't he? We can learn in his discussion with this rich young ruler several things, and I pray he will reveal them to us. But let's first see what the Bible tells us about this young man. Three things. And in these three things, we are led to believe if we were thinking purely and merely in worldly terms that this man was on top of the world. He was young. 
Matthew 19.20 tells us that. The young man said to him, he was rich. Verse 22 tells us he had great possessions. Luke 18.23 also accords with that. And he was a ruler of some kind. We learn from Luke's account of this in the 18th verse of the 18th chapter. You comprise all of those things. You compile them together. He had notoriety. He had money. And he had youth. He had it all. Or did he? The answer to that is he did not. The fact that he was young here, I want to try to define that. In the Jewish culture, anyone under 40 was young. So... Some can take heart in that. Needless to say, this young man came to Christ because he felt deficient in some way. That's the implication of this conversation. There was some perceived deficiency about his own soul. Something he perceived was lacking. And he wanted to know what it was and find remedy for it. It's interesting that he comes eagerly. He comes with great zeal. And he's concerned about his own soul. It's not unusual for people to come to Christ in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, and to have record of them coming with great zeal. Lord, my child is sick. My child is dying. Or even for themselves, Lord, I am sick. I'm blind, I'm deaf, I'm lame. And so it's not unusual for for us to see those who are approaching Jesus wanting something from Him. Wanting some ministry to flow out from Him into their lives. But what is unique is that this one comes inquiring about the state of his soul. And in that he is unique. He recognizes that something is askew. And we might go so far as to say he is eagerly searching for salvation, but we quickly have to temper that by saying he is eagerly looking for salvation, but on his own terms. He wants to define how salvation will come fully to him and how he can have some real Assurance of it. Mark tells us, as we read, that he came running and he came kneeling. Both of those are good preliminaries. Both of those, if all we, if we didn't know the rest of the story, which we do, both of these things would tell us that this rich young man is very close to salvation. And in a sense, he was. He was standing before salvation himself. He's running up to him. He's kneeling before him. But this is where the conversation begins. This is how he addresses the Son of God. He says to him, even though it's not original to Matthew, you'll notice that the word good there is either in italics or you have a note that certain manuscripts omit it, but 
both Mark and Matthew, excuse me, both Mark and Luke record in the originals that he called Jesus good teacher. He addresses the good teacher and he asks him a question. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And in that, this young man speaks for the masses of people generally. This is the way that we are pre-wired after the fall, in which all mankind has fallen. We're told that in Romans chapter 5, we've all fallen into sin because we are all descended of Adam, having inherited his sin nature and then being guilty ourselves because we actually commit sin. Most of mankind wants to remedy that by doing something good or several things which are equated to be good. And isn't it interesting the way Jesus responds to him? After he asks him, what can I do, what good thing can I do that I may have eternal life? And so we see initially that he sees Jesus as a good teacher of good things. And there's truth in that. But we've got to get beyond that, and this is where Jesus takes us. He asks him, Jesus responds and says, Why do you call me good? To the average rabbi, this would have been a sort of slap in the face, especially for a young man, to come up and make the pronouncement to him that you are a good teacher of good things. And we need to be careful here. Jesus is not denying. His correction of this young man is not a denial of his own inherent goodness. Rather, on the other hand, it is an affirmation of his being really and fully God. That truth revealed to this young man goes right over his head. Let us not let it go right over ours. Jesus replies to him, responds to him by saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. No one is, no one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. The truth of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 is on full display right here. Think of the wealth of information and spiritual understanding and knowledge that Jesus has just spoken to this young man. But Paul writes, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And that seems to be the umbrella that that is placed over this entire conversation. By the end of this conversation, the young man leaves none the better. Though he has spoken with the prince of life, the king himself. Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. And the young man eagerly replies, which ones? Perhaps he may even be wanting new commandments, something else that he could do to ensure that he is indeed going to inherit or have eternal life. 
And then Jesus begins to prescribe for him the keeping of what we call the second table of the law. They're in different orders in Mark and Luke, but yet they're all represented. Jesus gives him the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness. And then he goes back to the fifth, and he says, honor your father and your mother. And then he concludes this by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll notice that you skip over a few chapters into the 22nd chapter. That's how Jesus summarizes the commandments. The question presented to him, which is the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. I like this comment by John Broadus. He says, those who feel secure... And there he's referring to the self-righteous. Those who feel secure, Jesus refers them to the law. Keep the commandments. Six, seven, eight, nine, five, and the second of the greatest commandments. But that quotation goes on. Those who come to him contrite, he consoles with the gospel. And so here what we see in Jesus' conversation with this young man is his great wisdom as being the Son of God. Looking into the heart of this young man, seeing what is there, he calls him into law-keeping. How does the young man respond? In verse 20, he says to him, All of these things I have kept from my youth. In other words, he's saying to Christ, I have not committed murder, nor adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't borne false witness. I've honored my parents. But has he loved his neighbor as himself? Perhaps in his own mind, I think he probably had. And this is where the detail of Mark chapter 10, verse 21, shines. Let me remind you of what we read there. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. Mark and Luke also tell us that Jesus prefaced these words by saying, One thing you lack. Again, this young man had notoriety, he had riches, he had youth, and he was highly moral. We would have probably held him up as an example to our sons. Be like him. Do what he does. Live as he lives. But Jesus points out the one thing that is lacking and missing entirely in his life. 
And he tells him in verse 21, if you want to be perfect. And let me remind you, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus calls those to whom he was preaching, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He reiterates that to this young man and he tells him to go. Go now. Go quickly. Do not delay. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. What's his response? His response reveals his true heart. His response reveals that he was only willing to go so far to have eternal life. Some have written much and asked many questions as to why Jesus dealt with this young man this way. Why did Jesus not just unfold the gospel to him and call him to believe and trust him? Or did he? He did. Don't miss the fact of what Jesus called him to do. Had the young man done what Jesus prescribed, had he gone immediately and sold what he had and given it to the poor, it would have been because he trusted in Christ to be his all in all. It would have been based on his faith in Christ. So in essence, Jesus does exactly that. He is calling him by having him separate from what his heart truly trusted in. To set all of that aside willingly and come follow him, put faith and trust in him. But the young man stopped short of that. And we can further examine this. Jesus is not simply just holding up the law to him. He's doing that, but what he is in doing so, notice Jesus did not give new commandments. He simply went back to the old second table of the law, which details for us what we refer to as the moral law. But while he did not propose new commandments, he did propose a new spirit and a new motive in keeping them. Isn't that what the Sermon on the Mount does? When Jesus says, you have heard said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even call your brother a fool. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, not to even look at a woman with lust in your heart. That's the new motive. That's the new spirit that Jesus is calling his believers to. That's what he is outlaying before this young man. But again, the young man didn't hear it. He wouldn't hear it. Some say here that Jesus... messed this up. Of course, we would say that's a heretical thought. Some would say Jesus lost this young man. We would say again, that's a heretical thought. 
This young man was lost and determined to stay that way. I want you to look with me more closely at verse 22. After Jesus called him to go immediately and sell what you have, give it to the poor. And it's interesting, just two weeks ago we studied Zacchaeus. It's exactly what he did. And Jesus didn't even have to tell him to do it. You remember, he says, Lord, I'm giving half of everything that I own to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone else, I am going to make restitution many times over. So he immediately gave evidence of the, he immediately gave evidence and was bearing fruit of this new heart that was given him. But here, this young man in verse 22 says, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Notice two things. We're going to go in reverse order. First, he was sorrowful. This is not what he wanted to hear. Perhaps he was expecting commendation from Christ saying, Well done. You've kept all of these commandments and you've even done so from your youth. Well done, you good and faithful servant. But that's not what he hears. But the greatest thing to notice here in the 22nd verse is just the simple fact that he went away. A lot has transpired in a few verses. First, he comes running, kneeling, recognizing something is wrong, wanting assurance that he will have eternal life when he dies. He has a conversation with Jesus. Jesus, through that conversation, reveals the true idol that was, that was residing in his heart, and he was unwilling to set it aside. And he ends up leaving, turning away. Now, all kind of conjecturing has been made as to who this young man was. Some thinks he's Lazarus. Because it said both of him and Lazarus that Jesus loved him. It's a great conjecture. Simply can't prove that. Perhaps you've read that some think that this is even Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road. Again, strictly conjecture. No proof of that at all. If all we take is the actual biblical detail that we have, nothing else is known about this young man. And we're given every reason to think that he went away and stayed away from Christ because of this truth. He had great possessions. But more importantly, they had him. It's not just the fact that he had the great possessions and was exceeding wealthy or rich, according to Mark and Luke. It's that that wealth had him in its clutches. So even though everything on the surface looks promising for this young man, it ends far differently than I suspect he had in his mind. Running and kneeling before Christ, he is expecting this conversation to end with full assurance that he will have eternal life. 
But it ends far differently. It ends with him hanging his head, his countenance having fallen, and turning his back on Christ and walking away. The love of money has yet again proven itself to be the root of all evil. The unwillingness to turn loose of what God has given proved to be the damnation of this young man's soul. So if we take him as an example, I want to read to you these words from J.C. Ryle, a couple of sentences. He says, We must never forget that good feelings alone in religion are not the grace of God. We may know the truth intellectually. We may very often feel pricked in conscience. We may have religious affections awakened within us. We may have many anxieties about our souls and perhaps even shed many tears. But this is not conversion. It is not the genuine saving work of the Holy Ghost. It is good to feel, but it is far better to be converted. This young man had the desire. He had the acknowledgement, at least, of who Christ was initially. He was moral. He had the riches, the notoriety, the recognition. All of that was not enough to save him. If we are to hold him forth as an example, let's hold him forth as an example that all the world has to offer you will not save you. The best of what the world has to offer you will not save you. The strength of your youth will not save you. The recognition and places of prominence given to you by others will not save you. If we look at the commandments themselves that he said he had kept from his youth, not being a murderer, not being an adulterer, not stealing, not bearing false witness, honoring your father and your mother, none of these things will save you. Nor can you amass any amount of other good things along with them to save you. In essence, what Jesus reveals to this young man when he said he had loved his neighbor as himself. Remember, he says, I've kept these from my youth. Jesus says, then go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, really and truly love your neighbor as yourself. He wouldn't do it. And he went away from Christ sorrowful. Young people, even old people, It is good to feel your lack. It is good to realize something is missing. The question that he asks, what do I still lack? And then Jesus in Mark and in Luke tells him simply and plainly, one thing you lack. It is good to feel that something is missing. And I would say it is even a mercy of God to be pricked in your conscience concerning that thing. 
And it is good to seek the remedy in Christ, but you will have it on His terms. He will be Lord of all in your life. He is no halfway Savior. You cannot have Him and the world at the same time. You will not be the first. You will not be the first to serve both God and mammon. And in the end have eternal life. The scripture says you cannot. Some may be sitting here with a guilty conscience. Keenly feeling your need of salvation. Let me say that that is a gift and mercy of God given to you. A great enhancement of common grace bestowed upon you. To sense and to feel your need. That something is missing. If that is you, you must come to Christ by faith, believing in Him. You must come believing that He has bled for you, that He has died, that He has been raised, and that He even now sits at the Father's right hand. You must confess that He alone can give you life. No measure of law-keeping, no measure of morality, no measure of riches will save you. Jesus alone can give you life. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world and that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. You will not find salvation in the world of which Satan is the God. You will not find salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not find it in riches, nor will you even find true and lasting happiness in the world. That's one of the great lies of the devil. We talked this morning in our first meeting that he is subtle. Paul says, Beware of the wiles of the devil. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Young people, listen to me, hear me. You will not find true and lasting happiness in the world. It's all fleeting and passing vanity. There is nothing real about it. There is nothing substantial. There is nothing in the world that will make atonement for your sins. There is nothing in the world that will appease the wrath of God that is stirred up against you because of sin. There is nothing in the world that will cause God to look at you as righteous. No amount of self-righteousness will do. You must come to Christ. If the Lord is impressing these things upon you and you are like this young man, But yet you are so like this young man that you follow in his footsteps in going away from Christ. Let's call both he and you what you really are. Fools. Wouldn't you say he was a fool for turning away from the one who could give him eternal life? How foolish. 
but I want you to see that that's applicable to you as well. If you turn from Christ and seek salvation in any other place, in any other person, in any other relationship, in any other thing, you're just as foolish as he. The gospel message is very simple. Sometimes I may not make it sound as simple as it is. And that's my own fault. But the simplicity of the gospel is that Christ died in the place of sinners. That God poured out his wrath upon him. So that all who are believing in him might have eternal life. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that his people might be redeemed. And then we sing words that accord with that old hymn, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So let me entreat you. Any who are recognizing that there is something in your life lacking. And know this, you're pre-wired this way to want to do something about it. Even some good things. Put your faith and trust in Christ and do so now. Come now. It's what Jesus told him to do. Go now. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Basically, Jesus is saying, trust me. Put your faith in me, not in your riches. I'll save you. Eternal life will be yours. Don't be like this young man. Having heard that, going away sorrowful. Come to Christ. That's the message of the last several weeks. It should, it's the message of every week. Come to Christ. He will not turn you away. Come to Christ. Believing. Repenting of your sin. And he will save you. Let's pray together. Father, may none leave the way this young man left. May none leave sorrowful and unwilling to be obedient to the commands of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would do that work which none of us can do. That mysterious work of conversion, regeneration, that work which resides in the heart and the soul of man. Father, I pray for any here this morning that are disturbed and have unrest in their soul because they feel and sense that there is something lacking. Oh God, keep them from turning to the things of the world to find remedy. Open their understanding to the beauties of Jesus. Open their understanding to the glories of his gospel that when they read of him hanging on the tree, that when they read of him 
bleeding at Calvary that they rightfully understand that should have been their fate. That should have been our experience to suffer and bleed and die. But how gracious and how willing was Christ to be our substitute, to willingly set his face like a flint and go to Calvary and work out our redemption. Father, would you make these things known? Would you save men and women? Would you save boys and girls? Would you do it for your own glory? We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.